0: In the book of Judges, we're going to spend the last next couple of weeks, rather in the in the last uh, five chapters of uh, this very very amazing book. We've covered a lot of territory. We've looked at twelve various judges through a period of about 350 years, and uh, it's really amazing when you when you look at the details that are given over and over and over again. I'm reminded of the fact that there were seven recorded periods of cyclical behavior with the people of Israel. They became prosperous because God chose to bless them. And in their prosperity, they ended up forgetting God. And in their having forgotten God, they turned to idols of the Canaanites. And as they began to worship those idols, God brought judgment in the form of usually an outside force Uh, either the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Moabites or some of the other Canaanites within their borders. And over that period of time of that judgment, they'd turn to God, and then God would, in His mercy, send a Deliverer. And the Deliverer would resolve the issue with those people groups who were trying to control the people of Israel. They'd win great victories, and then they would have a time of prosperity again, and the cycle would then repeat itself. And that was the basic context of the entire book of Judges up until this last chapter that we looked at last time, chapter 16. There's no more mention of Judges in the remainder of the book. But what is given are two very amazing insights into the life of the people of Israel, during that period of time of the Judges. And it's not a good thing that we're going to be looking at as far as the way that they were. It it appears that these two particular series of events that are given in these last five chapters are events during their very low times without God. And it's not chronological. These events don't follow the time of Samson. In fact, the first one of the two that we'll be looking at over the next two weeks, the first one happened probably in the first generation or two of their time in the land of Canaan. After Joshua had died and there was no king in the land, and right from the very beginning, the book of Judges tells us that the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. That will be repeated in these portions of Scripture that we'll be looking at tonight and next week. That is what was causing their greatest problem in the fact that they did things in their own eyes that they thought was right. They had no connection, really, with the Word of God, even though the Levites had been proportionately placed within the borders of the land of Canaan, in a very specific way so that the people of God had no excuse. They could have traveled to a Levite community within 10 miles of their home, pretty much anywhere in the entire nation of Israel. But you'll notice that in our studies up to this point, there has not been any mention of Levitical priests, of the priesthood, of the temple or tabernacle in Shiloh. No mention of the worship of God as it was intended to be while Joshua was alive. They had that. But after his death, they deviated from that and began to look at the other gods in the land that they should have conquered, but they didn't conquer. It became very, very sinful and very, very sad And the events that we're looking at today and next week are terrible things that will take place or have taken place within the nation of Israel. The first one has to do primarily with a spiritual aspect of their relationship with God. Next week, the last three chapters, we'll be looking at a very, very ungodly and simply heathen things that were taking place because they had just simply eliminated their trust in God and their even concern about the things of God. So again, these two weeks that we'll be looking at, these last few chapters in the book of Judges, we're going to see a side of the nation in their spiritual depravity and also their moral uh, attitude towards the things of God that have just simply been terribly... Terribly abused. And it's amazing to me that God, in His mercy, continued to call them His people. But He does. He still does today. There's no question in my mind, I hope it's done in yours, that the people of Israel, in spite of all their shortcomings, in spite of all of their stiff-neckedness, they are still God's people. Chapter 17 begins with these words. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. In the Hebrew, it means who is like God. Of course, we have an Old Testament book with that title name, Micah. But this is not the same person that is the prophet that is given in the Old Testament. This man is a man from Ephraim. And it tells us that he has a very, very unique approach to worship. And let's look at it together. In verse 2 it says, And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver, or pieces of silver, silver that were taken from you, and on which you put a curse, even saying in my ears, Here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. She was so happy that he was willing to admit that he took the money, but she was happy also that the money was restored, that she would be able then to make use of that money in the way that she had intended. And so she's so excited about his having revealed this to her that he calls upon him a blessing, whereas before she called a curse upon whoever it was that stole it, That was him who stole it, but the curse now has been changed to a blessing. She's very, very thankful that the money was indeed found, because she had a goal, she had a purpose for the use of that money, and she explains that to her son in the following verses. Verse 3 says, So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. So he's returning the money, 1,100 shekels, back to her. And she admits to him that she had all along planned on using that money to go to a silversmith to have an image made, an image of the Lord. That is against the commandment of God. There are only a few generations from the time in the wilderness when God gave his Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. It should have been very, very well known among them. But again, even after just a few generations in the land, there was so very little effort on the part of the people everywhere in the land to go to the Levitical priesthood for their instruction that they were supposed to receive. And it's not certain whether it was the fault of the Levites or the fault of the people in not going to the Levites. But the bottom line was this. They failed to do what God had intended for them with regard to learning about His ways and His laws, that the Levites should have been able to teach the people. There was none of that, apparently, or very little of it at best. I'm reminded though in verse 2 where it says his mother said may you be blessed by the lord my son she actually uses the word for god yahweh which is the word that god gave to moses when moses asked him his name who shall i tell them has sent me tell them i am has sent me sent you and that is the tetragram yahweh y h Vh And it was the name of God. She used it. So she was aware of God. She didn't use the Canaanite God's name. She used Jehovah or Yahweh as the Lord. So in verse 4 it says, Then he returned the silver to his mother. And then his mother took, listen, she had 1,100 pieces of of silver. She took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith And he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The name for image in the Hebrew is uh, a name that implies a small image, a household image of a usually a Canaanite god. They were very prevalent throughout the time of the judges, but This again was an image that she intended to worship or for him to worship the God of Israel. That was something that God had said was absolutely against his will. You are not to make any graven image of him. So whatever the image looked like, it was an image that was made of silver and he placed it in his home. But not only that... It tells us in verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. He's an Ephraimite. The priesthood was limited by the Mosaic covenant to just the descendants of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood was in the land The descendants of Aaron were all over the territory of Ephraim, as well as all of the other 11 tribes. But he's completely disregarding the commands of God and setting up his own shrine instead of going to Shiloh, which was not that far away, to worship God as was prescribed by the Lord through Moses. Everything about this is totally disregarding all of the commands of God. The worship of God through an idol, setting up a shrine in a place other than Jerusalem, or other than rather where the tabernacle was at that time in Shiloh, and also appointing his own son, an Ephraimite, as a priest. Those are absolutely things that should not have been done. He's doing things in his own way. Just as it says in verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I happen to be reading Proverbs 18 today, uh, and Proverbs 18, verse 1, stuck out in my mind as it relates to this particular individual's activities. 18.1 of the book of Proverbs says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So he was definitely not wise in choosing to do these things that he had done. He isolated himself. And one of the things that I find very, very sad, and it's still prominent, prevalent in this day, is that there are many people who think they can worship God without having to attend church service, without having to assemble together, even though the Word of God tells us very clearly that we are not to forsake the assembling ourselves together in our worship of God. Unfortunately, that is a trend because we have the Internet, because we have all kinds of media that provide all kinds of very, very good teachings by excellent Bible teachers, for the most part. There's many who are very much outside of that realm of what we would call good, solid Bible teachers, that are listened to as well. But the point is, they're isolating themselves from the fellowship, and that's so, so very important that people need to understand this is critically needed in these last days. This man isolated himself from the worship of God the way that God had prescribed. And I'm convinced that he would have known at least a little bit about what was right. However, He chose to do things his own way, just as the writer of Judges has indicated in verse 6. They did everything that was right in their own eyes. So he's built the shrine, he's got a son that he's appointed as his priest. Now the story changes a little bit and adds to the deviation from the things of God that Micah has allowed himself to fall into. It says in verse 7, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, and he was a Levite, and he was staying there. He lived in Bethlehem. Now, the reason it says Bethlehem of Judah, or just simply Bethlehem hyphen Judah, is because there were more than one Bethlehem. There was another Bethlehem in the land of Zebulun. But this is the Bethlehem which which is very near Jerusalem, the Bethlehem in which Jesus was born, This is the Bethlehem that this particular individual that is being introduced to us was from. And it tells us again, he was a Levite. Now, it doesn't tell us yet anything more about him. But we'll learn in chapter 18 his name and his ancestry. And it's very interesting to find that out. But until we get to that, let's look together at what the Lord shows us with regard to this man from Bethlehem, Judah, who is a Levite. It tells us in verse 8, The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. And then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. Now it's interesting to me, as a Levite, he could have lived in any one of the Levitical cities. He could have stayed in Jerusalem and if he was truly a Levite, been used by the priesthood in the service of managing the things of the Lord, in either later on in Jerusalem certainly, but in Shiloh. He was not far from Shiloh either, so he could have been used in that way as many Levites would be used if they were at all involved in following God's plan. But they were not doing that. This man is an example of those who, even the Levites in that day, were turning away from the plan of God, from the purpose of God, from the instructions of God, and doing their own thing. They were not excluded from those who did what was right in their own eyes. And this man was one of them. And it tells us in verse 9, And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem to Judah. in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Hey, dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. So he's a hired servant. That's so wrong. A Levite should not have accepted any payment. A Levite, according to the word of God, should have lived on what the service of the Lord provided him. They were to offer sacrifices, and the Levites were to be able to consume the meat from those sacrifices. They were to be given bread and all the various things that they needed, wine, water, supplies. That was to be all taken care of by the generosity of the other tribes of Israel. The Levites were not to be taking income from any other source. They were supposed to rely solely on their God. This man is obviously a hireling. He's not interested in the things of God. He's interested primarily in what's in it for me. And friends, I submit to you that this is not something that has gone away. We still see it in our churches today. There are men who are in it for something other than truth. Peter talked about it Paul talked about it there will be false prophets false teachers there will be people who will come in searching after filthy lucre there will be men who will be teachers of people who are have have itching ears to hear what is not truth but something that is palatable nothing that talks about sin nothing that talks about uh, the hell that is the place that people will go to if they don't turn from their sin they would rather have somebody talk about God's love and the social gospel that has replaced the truth of God's word in today's ministries many many ministries is such a terrible thing it's not new because as the writer of Ecclesiastes has said over and over again There is nothing new under the sun. It has been ever since Adam sinned. It was there in the nation of Israel during the time of the judges. It's in our present day. As a matter of fact, as I read these words in these chapters that we're looking at, I can't help but think of the depravity that exists within the church as well as within our society. Uh, You know, all of the various things that are accepted by our society because we've turned away from God and we're calling those things that are evil good and those things that are good are evil in their eyes. We are living in the last days and it's becoming more and more evident that things are winding down very, very quickly. And it's because of ungodliness, it's because people have not chosen to look to the Word of God and to learn from what God has spoken. And in these examples that we're given here, we should be indeed learning not to do what they had done. But anyway, Micah has offered this job, and this man is willing to take the position. And so it says in verse 11, Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man came like became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. Absolutely no way that anyone could get that kind of a mindset from the Word of God as it's given in the first five books of the Pentateuch, of the Bible. Nowhere is it said that anyone is to take to himself a person that he can declare is his own personal priest. This was Micah's mindset. He's building his own church, his own God relationship based on what he thinks is right. And he even calls upon the name of the Lord as though he believes, and he did, that God would bless this. That God would... Consider this to be a good thing, but it's an abominable thing as far as God is concerned. According to God's Word, it's absolutely not the direction that Micah should have been taking, nor is it the direction this Levite should have been taking. But that is how many people have become convinced that they can just do their own thing, that you can go to God in many different ways in many different places and you can find God in many, many different religions. You can find God eventually. You'll stand before Him. But if you don't go down that right way, that path that has been told to us by Jesus as the narrow way, the narrow path that leads to Him, and He Himself, Jesus, is that narrow way, He is the only way if they choose to come up to God in some other way, they will find that they will stand in His presence. They will bow the knee to Him, but they will find out that they were wrong. And the judgment of God will fall on them for that reason. The nation of Israel has fallen very far from God, even in these early years of their existence in the land of Canaan. Why? primarily because they did not obey the Lord in wiping out the Canaanites. And they began to worship the gods of Canaan. They began to do things that was right in their own eyes. And it was absolutely far from God's plan for them. Chapter 18 will continue now. And the story of Micah is intertwined with another story that begins in this chapter 18, with regard to the tribe of Dan. Now, you may remember when they took the land, each tribe was allotted a territory. And it was done by Lot, by Joshua and his three associates, who, by the Spirit of God, cast lots and they distributed the land to the various tribes. The land that Dan was given is a land that is now very near the territory of what we call the Gaza Strip. They were given a territory that at the time was dominated by the Ammonites, later the Philistines. But the Ammonites had threatened Dan, and even though Dan had, according to the word of God, some 64,000 plus soldiers they were reluctant to go to war against the Ammonites to take the land that God had provided for them. So they settled in the mountains region instead of that fertile land where they were given uh, as their territory. And it's given to us in the first chapter of Judges that they were very, very dissatisfied with their territory and so they sent people up into the northern territory just north of the land of Ephraim, and they settled there. This is a part of that story that's being given to us in chapter 18. And it reads like this. In verse 1 it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. And again, that's not God's fault. That is their fault. They hadn't taken the land that was given to them by the Lord. So it tells us in verse 2, So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor, from Zorah and Eshterol, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, Go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. So on their way, in their journey, they came across Micah. Coincidence? No, that's not so. God has a purpose in all of this. Remember, there's no such word in the Hebrew language as coincidence. But God is allowing it to happen for His purposes. We'll find out that, again, they're going to inhabit a territory in a very, very fertile area north of the land of Ephraim, right around Mount Hermon in the northern part of Israel. And there is even today a very well-known place called Tel Dan. It is where they established their city that they named Dan, as we will see further on as we read in this chapter. But I want to mention it here because I want to give you some insight as to the importance of this particular territory. Tel Dan is the largest of all of the tells in Israel. And a tell is basically the Hebrew word for a mound. And the mound is where a city once had been inhabited and then was defeated, destroyed, and over the years covered up and then another city would be built on top of it and that city would be destroyed and it becomes higher and higher until it's a mound or a tell. And Tel Dan is one of the most highly... Uh, well, what, what's the term in archaeology when you, when you do archaeological digs? They have taken that tell and they have uh, brought some insight into the history of that particular city by digging into the remains of that which was still hidden underneath the surface. It's interesting to note that they have dug down several layers and they found what is considered to be a very important gateway. And in that gateway, there is a steel upon which there is an inscription. And the inscription reads in Hebrew, Beit Dawid, which means house of David. And below that, Melech Yisrael, which is king of Israel. The English translation of that inscription in Hebrew is House of David, King of Israel. It's in the territory of Israel today. It's just outside of Mount Hermon today. And it is that place which identifies in a wonderful way that David was indeed the King of Israel, according to the Scriptures. Now, the world doesn't like to admit that, but it's there. It's in plain sight. And it is a very, very important find because it proves that that land belongs to them. So they're on their way to find a place to live. They ultimately will find this place just, again, very near to the Mount Hermon. And it's from Mount Hermon, Hermon by the way, that the Jordan River begins its flow. The waters are formed and they flow out of that mountain into the Jordan River from the snow that melts and a stream that is string-fed as well. And that water has flowed into the Jordan River from the very beginning. So it's very lush, very fertile territory in that time. But they first come to Micah in the land of Ephraim on their way to finding this place that they will ultimately find. In verse 3 it says, while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So either by some of them actually knowing the individual, or perhaps recognizing that he's got an accent that is not an Ephraimite accent. They recognized either his accent or his actual voice that he was familiar to some of them. Whatever the case may be, it tells us they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me, and he has hired me, for I have become his priest. So they said to him, Well then, if you're a priest, apparently that's their line of thinking, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. So they want the Priest, seeing that he's a Levite and a priest assigned by Micah, apparently they consider that to be valid. They ask him to tell them, since you're connected through the priesthood to the Almighty God of Israel, is it God's will for us to continue on this journey or not? Will we be prosperous? And the priest said to them in verse 6 Go in peace, in the presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. So it gives them a confirmation, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's from God or not, they think it is, and they think it is a positive sign for them to move forward. Now, interestingly enough, it does prove to be correct in terms of their being able to do what they set out to do. But that doesn't mean that the man who said it was a prophet of the Lord, not in any stretch of the imagination. Can we say that? However, God still uses this for his greater purpose. So verse 7 says, So the five men departed and went to Laish. That's the name of the city at that particular time. Elsewhere it is known as Lashem, another name for the same place. But here is referred to as Laish. It was a city that belonged to people who were probably Phoenician, because it is very close to, but far enough away from the city of Sidon, the city-state, so that it can be associated with them. They're not Canaanites necessarily, although there is a possibility that they might have been. But it's more logical to believe that they were probably Phoenician, living in a territory several miles from the nearest Phoenician city. They isolated themselves, a very mountainous area. There were mountains on the northwest and mountains on the northeast, and, and they had Herman Mountain on the southeast, so they were very, very well situated in a very fertile place. It was a very lovely place for them, and they were established. It tells us, In verse 7 again, the five men departed and went to Laish and they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. They were at peace. They figured they were safe where they were. They didn't need to have a, a very large walled city. They were protected by the mountains and they felt secure. It was a nice, quiet, rural place to live. Out of harm's way, What can go wrong in a place like that? So far from the rest of civilization, nobody's going to bother us here. Well, that turned out to be not the case. It tells us there were no rulers in the land in the latter part of verse 7 who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone else. So they were isolated. They were very, very simple and rural people out in the country. Enjoying life. Off the grid, if you will. Verse 8 says, Then the spies came back to the brethren at Zorah and Eshtaol, and their brethren said to them, well, What is your report? And so they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. They were convinced this is where we should go. They gave a good sales job, of the fact that this was a perfect place for the tribe of Dan. And verse 10 says, When you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtaol, armed with weapons of war. Now again, they could amass an army in the entire tribe of Dan of over 64,000 men, according to Joshua. However, they only choose to send 600 armed men for this particular task. It's not a very large city. It's unprotected. There's no evidence of any danger from an outside source defeating them and preventing them from taking the city. So that's all they need. I'm mindful of the fact that when Joshua inhabited the land, they crossed over the Jordan River, they conquered Jericho, and then they turned to Ai, and the men convinced Joshua. We only need maybe 3,000 men. That's all we need, and Joshua agreed to it. Here, they only need 600 men. Of course, this is before the time of Gilead, who only needed 300 But Gilead had to face an army of 185,000 men. This is a much different situation. And it's before Gilead. It is a time when they're doing things that is right in their own eyes. They're making their own decisions. They're not seeking God's will. They're just assuming that they're in the land and they can do as they please, and no one's going to stop them. So in verse 12 it says, Then they went up and encamped in Kirjath-Jarim in Judah. And therefore, they call that place Mahana Dan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath-Jaram. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So they're coming back. They know where Micah lives. They know that the men who were spying out the land had mentioned this man Micah. And so these 600 men are coming with them now and they stop at Micah's house as well. And it says in verse 14, Then the five men who had gone down to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside and came to the house of the young Levite man to the house of Micah, and greeted him. And the six hundred men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men who were armed with weapons of war. So he was fearful, could not prevent what was taking place. But he asked the question. He says in verse 18, When they went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household items, idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? He's wondering, Why are you doing this? What's going on here? And they said to him, in verse 19, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. So just shut up. Listen to us. We have a proposal. So they tell him, Come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man, or that you be a priest to a tribe of a family of Israel? There's an appeal to a hireling for something better than what he has already, no matter what that may be. One of the things that I'm pleased to say about the majority of Calvary Chapel pastors is that we're not in it for filthy lucre's sake. We are called, and we believe that calling of the Lord is a very, very certain call, a sure call, and even that it cannot be revoked. And we would not, for the most part, and there are exceptions, certainly, but for the most part, those who are called will not want to try to get self-improvement In the way of God's plan, God's purpose for the true man of God. I hope you understand that. You can know them by their fruit. This man is obviously a hireling. He doesn't mind giving up everything that he was promised by Micah, even though it was a great beneficial thing for him. It was a lifestyle that was Very, very good. Now he's offered something even better. And so he's going to jump at it. He's going to say, Wow, I can't take that offer and say no thank you to it. It's too much on his plate. And he's loving it. So the priest's heart was glad, it says in verse 20. And he took the ephod, the household idols and the carved image, and took his place among the people. So the entire tribe of Dan is going to be living in idolatry. They are going to use this priest as their priest. They're linked to God. They'll worship the God of Israel for a season, but through a means by which God had not intended. They don't really have a true right to the land that they are about to take. It was not the land that was given to them. So they're taking advantage of a situation that they should not have taken advantage of. But yet God still is in it. God is going to use it. And God, although it's not the right thing for them to do, will make it so that His plan will continue to unfold as He has declared it will unfold. That's the way God always has worked. and It is still the way He's working today. You look around at everything that's going on in the Middle East Everything that's happening in Asia, with North Korea coming against South Korea uh, and threatening them, with China threatening Taiwan, with Iran now suggesting that they will come against Pakistan if Pakistan goes against Iran. And Iran has already been sending missiles into Pakistani territory and Pakistan has already retaliated. Iran and Pakistan are nuclear powers. They do not like each other. And there is going to be a clash that will soon take place there as well. There is more war coming in the Middle East. Yemen is really going to be a threat to Israel and also to all of the nations in the world because of the shipping lanes that they control. There is a war going on in Gaza you are well aware of. Lebanon is next. Syria is also very involved with some of the things that are going to be happening and have already been happening in Israel. Jordan has sent missiles into Syria. There are so many things happening. So many wars and rumors of wars, just like Jesus said. All of this is taking place because God has declared it. They don't know that this is part of what God is planning. None of them are aware, except for a very few, perhaps, people in Israel who do know the word of God, who look at that and say, these things are prophesied. These things are happening because God said. There's an awakening taking place all around the world, and I pray that it will begin to be a truth here in this land as well. But there's so much evil in this nation, and so many people have turned so far from God that I wonder, will this nation survive? Will this nation see a renewal once again? Will there be a move of the Holy Spirit so that there will be many people getting saved in this land of the United States of America? Or anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere? Are we that lost? Has God already lifted His hand of mercy? I don't know, my friends, but I do know this. God is in control, and we're still here. And because we're still here, there's still work to be done. And that work must be done until the fullest of Gentiles has come in. When that day comes, when there is no more room in the house of God, his house is full, when that last person comes into the kingdom, and then... I believe the church will no longer be needed here. I know that day is soon. I believe it is right around the corner. And things again are heating up so rapidly with so many different things happening in the world around us. This is the end days. But in that day, they were just as far from God as the nation of Israel is today for the most part. So in verse 21 it tells us they departed, they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. So these 600 warriors had women and children with them. But they put the women and children ahead of them as they moved away from Micah's house, knowing that Micah would want to retaliate if he could. And that's exactly what now is taking place. Micah is getting some men together, and he has now overtaken the people of Dan, the 600 men of war, plus all the women and children who were with them. And they called, verse 23, called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? So he said, You have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest." and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? Notice that he doesn't say, you have taken away my Levitical priest who was leading me in my worship of the one true God. He says instead, you have taken away my gods. His gods were his idols. So he's wondering, what am I going to do now? I don't have any gods to worship. You're taking away all of my worship ability. So he said to them, You've taken away my gods which I have made. And the children of Dan said back to him in verse 25, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. He gave up. Of course, if his mother's still alive, she still has 900 shekels out of the 1,100 that she was going to give him anyway. So it's just as well that perhaps Micah could go back to his mother, get another couple of hundred shekels or pieces of silver, and have another idol maid, and find another priest or appoint the priesthood to his son as he had done originally, it's not going to change anything for him. He's not going to turn to the true God, apparently, and cry out to him for help. Or perhaps he did. We're not told. I hope that he did. The rest of the chapter continues with regard to the people of Dan. It says in verse 27, So they took the things Micah had made, and the priest who had belonged to him, and they went to Laish, to the people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called that name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up themselves for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. First mentioned in the book of Joshua, or Judges rather, with regard to Shiloh and the house of God. Also, I went through it very quickly, intentionally, but I want to go back to verse 30 because it's there that we find the identity of this Levitical priest. I want you to take note of something very carefully because in my translation, the New King James, and in many of the other translations, it says that he is Jonathan, by name, he is the son of Gershom, who is the son of Manasseh. In other translations, a few gooder translations, if you will, it's not Manasseh, it's Moses. And I believe it is gooder because Moses had a son named Gershon. There's no reference to a son of Manasseh by that name. So what we're seeing here is a third generation from Moses. This is Moses' grandson. Moses' son Gershom had a son named Jonathan. And this is the Levite that has come to Micah who is now serving in the city of Dan as their priest. Take note of the fact that he is a descendant of Moses. That's important because he is a Levite, yes, a descendant of Levi. But he is not a descendant of Aaron. And it is through Aaron that the priesthood must come. Through the descendants of Aaron, those Levitical descendants were the priesthood. But he is not of a priestly line. He's chosen, again, outside of the will of God to become a priest to the people of Dan in the city of Dan. Now, again, this is in the northern territory of the land of Israel. And it's important to note that if you look at the prophecy in the book of Genesis that Dan's father, Jacob, made with regard to his son Dan, it fits so very perfectly in the description of the tribe of Dan in the days of Judges that we've just been looking at. He prophesied right, rightly, Dan did indeed occupy that northern territory, and it's very, very familiar to the majority of Israelites that when you describe the city or rather the territory of Israel, you describe it biblically in this way. From Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, you'll see a reference to the nation of Israel as that territory from Dan to Beersheba. It wouldn't have been so if these men hadn't Done what they had done. If they had stuck with the territory that they were given, then there would be no such reference to the nation of Israel as we just described, from Dan to Beersheba. It's part of the way that God does things. He moves things around using the plans of men who may or may not know God or want to know about God, and yet He uses those decisions those plans, and brings about his perfect plan. He's always done this. It's one of the most remarkable things as you read through the Word of God and you see how all of the foolishness of man is used by God anyway to bring about his perfect plan. And his perfect plan will end with David's throne being sat upon by the king of his people. His name is Jesus. That's the end goal. That's what we have to look forward to. But take note of the fact that in these chapters that we've just looked at, and again in the next three chapters that end the book of Judges, we'll see so very clearly that they are so very far from God. One theologian that I've read indicated that in these two chapters, eight out of the ten Ten Commandments were broken by individuals of the nation of Israel. They were doing things that was right in their own eyes, but as far as God was concerned, they would do things that were so far from His will, and yet, in His grace and mercy, He loves them still. that's our God, that's the one that we serve. He's still the same God today as He was yesterday, today, and forever. And we will continue to serve Him. And I pray that we'll do it well. We've begun a good thing, and I pray that we will end well as we serve Him in these last days. God bless.